Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be giving my final thoughts about Scanner Darkly, uh, which Dick published in 1977, the final of his 1970s novels. Uh, today, we'll look at chapters 13 through through 17. It's longer. It's it's a longer than the or more chapters than we covered in the previous episodes. But a lot of these are quite short, and and the plot moves along quite briskly at this point in the novel. So what we've seen in the previous episodes is uh, the undercover police officer, Bob Arctor, uh, using a, a very addictive drug called Substance D, has basically fried his brain by, um, by this point in the novel. He's no longer to function, able to function in his job. In fact, he's gotten so bad he's not able to really identify the fact that he's essentially um, informing on himself uh, as part of his job. Most of the novel, though, is a pretty uh, intimate look at the at the daily lives of drug users and, and drug addicts and drug dealers. And it's quite a tragic look. This is uh, Dick's, uh, you know, anti-drug book. Um, but it has a lot of the other themes that we've come to know about. I'm like, you know, characters losing touch with reality, institution versus the individual. Um, not so much about relationships. I mean, there is a relationship between Bob Arctor and Donna, but it's not as much a relationship novel as something like Confessions of a Crop Artist uh, or or even something like uh, Flow My Tears, Tears, The Policeman Said, which which kind of looks at the futility and barbarism of, of kind of serial monogamy. Um, but other themes of Philip Dix are really strong in this novel. So when I'm done looking at the final chapters, I'll come back and, and kind of say what I think the major thematic contributions of this novel is to the overall work of, of Philip K. Dick. So um, at the end of chapter 12, we looked at Bob Arctor was getting another series of tests to find out his, you know, if he can still function in his job. They've noticed things in his reports that the police have noticed things in his reports that led them to send him back for additional testing. And Barris has come to desire to be an informant on Bob Archer, claiming he's part of a vast conspiracy. Um, as we'll find out, he's basically just covering for himself and Barris all along was the main target of this particular police investigation. But anyway, chapter 13 begins uh, back in room 203 where Fred, uh, you know, Fred is the Bob Archer's essentially police on, you know, name he uses when he's functioning with the police, but he really has lost uh, any connection with Bob Arctor. It's, it's really his mind is split between these two characters because of his use of drugs. Um, and that's essentially what he's told by these psychiatrists in room 203 that you know his use of substance D has basically zapped his brain. They say normally a person uses the left hemisphere the self system or ego or consciousness is located there. It is dominant because it's in the left hemisphere always at the speech center is located. More precisely, bilateralization involves a verbal ability or valency in the left with spatial abilities in the right. The left can be compared to a digital computer, the right to an analog. So bilateral function is not merely duplication. Both precept systems monitor and process incoming data differently. 
but for you, neither hemisphere is dominant, and they don't act in a compulsory manner, each to the other. One tells you one thing, the other tells you another. And the other psychiatrist explains it's like having two fuel gauges in your car, both reporting different information. And then they tell him, you know, this is caused by substance D, and you're going to have to get off it, um, and that you may have re your mind may be repaired or it may not. It's it's not really clear. Um, and then they go through some additional experiments, going asking him to do things like even describe a left-handed glove, and he can't even do that. And but this is kind of the problem problematic with this kind of split in the between the hemispheres. The communication between the hemispheres is you can't really connect things with if they're inverse, right? They're, they even give the example of of Nate like native people who first see a photograph for the first time don't recognize themselves because they always see themselves as a mirror image of themselves but when they see a photograph of themselves for the first time they can't recognize it that's an ongoing theme in this this novel how you know you hear your voice over a tape recording you don't recognize it you see yourself on a video camera and you look odd you don't look how you think you look it's because we don't really perceive ourselves objectively from the outside and that's part of the confusion going on here although it really is explained at you know substance d addiction but there's a more banal experiences we all have with surveillance, with filming, with photo photo photography. That's a bit uh, weird, and, and Dick's having a little bit of fun with that. Now, Bob Archer's mind, or Fred's mind, I should say, at this point is still kind of on the job and still thinking how he can get Bob Archer, not realizing really fully that it's him, thinking how, he, you know, how the surveillance should be kept on. He just basically decides he's going to get off substance D. Not sure how to do his job being off it but nevertheless he wants to continue with his with his work in fact he goes back to the the, the office to meet again with Jim Barris and look over the evidence that Jim Barris was going to present that's supposedly going to nail Bob Bob Arctor and so we get another conversation with Barris who's come back to present his his evidence that he wanted to show the police and of course what he brings is is tapes of of conversations that he has gotten through surveillance which is exactly what the police are doing to him so the levels of surveillance here are, are overlapping and that's um, you know that kind of goes on throughout the story the levels of paranoia overlap the levels of surveillance overlap the use of drugs between police and drug dealers and users overlaps the dealing you know the police men are dealing as are the dealers it's you know all these things are are overlapping and and that's part of the point of the novel is just this incestual relationship between the police and and uh, the dealers and users. Now, after Barris gives all this information, they essentially just arrest him and they, they say, we're doing it for your own good, for to keep you near if we have other questions and, and, and just to, you know, give you a reason for being in the police station for, for all that reasons. And um, it says uh, you're being charged as a formality to keep you available with giving false information to the authorities knowingly this is of course only a pretext for your own safety but we all realize that but the formal charge will be lodged anyhow that's what they tell barris but in fact it turns out and and fred gets the story later on that barris was the real target of this investigation all along because barris was involved with some pretty shady uh business you know even involving guns and it, you know importing guns or, or something so he was the real target all along now, this other guy in a scramble suit talking to Fred tells Fred that basically your career is over at this point and you're going to just have to clean yourself up. And he recommends he doesn't go to like the the new path, the rehab clinics instead, just go up like, in the woods with a bunch of liquor 
and help have the liquor help you get through the worst of the of the crash and the you know all the bad stuff that's going to go down with the with the detoxing and the withdrawal symptoms bring a gun maybe just in case it gets that bad and if you don't get better you stay up there but if you know if you get better maybe you can come back down and and, and get your life back together um, they also tell him that he's basically broken police policy that police aren't supposed to willingly get addicted to to drugs while undercover he should have been not been taking so much essentially is what he's told and he's going to be fine maybe to get a smaller paycheck and maybe even be arrested for this so it's it's best he kind of just you know sees his career in the police over and that's what what hank essentially tells him now something really weird happens here we've been told throughout that bob arctor fred has 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 these two kids and had this family before he became an undercover police officer and he's had conversations with hank before where they talked about their kids and he said i have two kids and hank said he has one and hank then at one point when fred says like i have kids i can't abandon them he says i don't believe you do you're not supposed to have kids and then Hank explains, because I don't think you have kids, because I know who you are. And especially, he's, he's narrowed down from that group of people living in that house who he is. He's, you know, you know he's not Barris. So he's, you know, he figures out he's Bob Arctor and tells him, you're Bob Arctor. And this quarterly, like, f- confuses Fred, who by this point doesn't really see sees Bob Arctor as an entirely different person. But he says, like, you can just go call Donna Hawthorne. She can help you out. She can drive you somewhere and, and aid you. So then that really happens, and and Donna does come and and basically drives Fred, not to the mountains, not to this idea to go to the mountains to detox himself. He's going to take him to New Path, to this this rehab clinic. Um, But first, they they basically sit down and have a chit-chat for a while where they talk about, um, they they have their basically last conversation as as friends, although it's, it's between Donna and essentially Fred, but... You know, it's, it's still a little bit confusing here about these identities. Sometimes Dick uses the name Bob Arctor. And I think he does in this section talk, you know, he uses Bob Arctor. Because I, I guess in the Stranable suit, he's Fred. Outside of it, he's, he's Bob. He's Bob Arctor. And the heart of their conversation is just about how unfair it it is to Bob Arctor that this, this happened to him. Uh, she says, or this she thinks, uh, it requires the greatest kind of wisdom to know when to apply injustice. How can justice fall victim ever to what is right? How can this happen, she thought. Because there's a curse in this world and all this proves it. This is proof right here. Somewhere in the deepest level possible, the mechanism, the constructions of things fell apart. And up from what remains swam the need to do all the various sorts of unclean wrongs and wisest choices that made us act out. It must have started thousands of years ago. By now it's infiltrated into the nature of everything. And she thought into every one of us. We can't turn around or open our mouths or speak, decide at all without doing it. I don't even care how it got started, when or why. She thought, I just hope it ends sometime, end quote. And this is her really thinking about the whole situation, the, this war on drugs, the, the, the drug culture itself, how it, you know, the injustice of the victims of that, of that culture and that, that war. And whether that, that victim is in jail or subject to police brutality or kills themselves or, or becomes an addict or you know ends up in a clinic somewhere you know whatever their fate it's, it's all kind of a gross injustice that's just kind of a symptomatic of this world that that this horrible despairful world that these characters inhabit she even speaks back to a golden age when when justice and wisdom were the same thing before everything got shattered and confused and broken up 
and then she drops him off at the at the New Life uh, rehab center, and and they insult him and say it's just another drug addict, and and Donna then leaves him behind. Um, so chapter fourteen picks up, and we, we're no longer dealing with Fred or Bob Arctor. He's got a new identity that he takes on in this residence rehab center. Uh, which is just called Bruce. So from, from, from now to the end of the novel, he's essentially just just Bruce. And he's living his life, you know, doing chores around this, this clinic. They put him to work as part of the, the rehab. They, so they, got, they do work. They, have, they play certain games. They have certain group sessions, therapy sessions. And this is all, you know, you think it's all part of the, just the institutional life of, of someone who's totally burned out on drugs to the point that they're not even capable of functioning. We learned that this entire center seems to be funded in some other way because the patients don't pay anything. In fact, one other patient even says something like, you've already paid enough you know, with the, the brain damage he's been suffering is, is, is essentially his payment for that. And then he's doing work. You know, Everyone's at, at work doing different chores. He wants to work, Bruce wants to work like with animals. He has some deep desire to work outdoors and with the animals, but they tell him he's going to have to do indoor stuff, at least, at least for now, but maybe later he'll get a chance to work with work outdoors or work with animals. So during one of their group therapy sessions, they, they deal with different concepts and, and try to think through the different concept, concepts that, that um, really people who have been heavily addicted to substance D that have had this cross chatter and uh, inability for the two hemispheres of the brain to communicate and cooperate with each other would have difficult with concepts they'd have difficulty with. Uh, one is living and unliving things are exchanging properties. Another is the drive of of living things is stronger than the drive of living things. Uh, another one is activity does not necessarily mean life. Quasars are active and a monk meditating is not inanimate. Motion that is circular is the deadest form of the universe. Now, not all these are explained, but they seem to be just essentially uh, things that are you know, paradoxes you know, or apparent contradictions, things that, that normal people you know, can can see through but people who are suffering from substance d addiction really can't now also in this chapter uh bruce meets up with this other person who's apparently a patient called called mike um so here's his description in the middle of the lounge stood a short stocky man with curling hair and a pug face he shifted his belt frowning how does this work how do you work this here i don't see how you get it to stay why doesn't it loosen he had a three inch buckleless belt with metal rings and he didn't know how to cinch the rings. Glancing around, his eyes twinkling, he said, I think they gave me one nobody else could work. So that's our introduction to this character, Mike. And he basically begins to befriend Bruce. And he kind of presents as he's much more lucid than Bruce's. Bruce speaks in one word sentences at this point, you know, formulaic responses. Like when talking about getting off drugs, he just says it's hard to get off. That, that's like the most he can muster in a, in a sentence. He really... He has a very disjointed internal monologue in this point in the novel. You know, his brain really is fried and, and he can kind of just respond in ways he's expected to re respond a little bit, but very short sentences, very, very um, just passing thoughts is the most he's capable of. Mike, though, is capable of, of pretty elaborate thought and systemic thought about his existence. So, um, you know, it's, it's like he's later in the recovery process. He's like the experienced guy who's been around a while and maybe about ready to get out. That, that's the way he kind of seems to me. Here's some of the things he says. Like, I served myself 10 years in prison. One time I saw eight guys in a row of cells cut their throats in one day. We slept with our feet in the toilet. Our cells were that small. That's what prison is. You sleep with your feet in the toilet. You never been to prison, have you? 
But on the other hand, I saw prisoners 80 years old still happy to be alive and wanting to stay alive. I remember when I was on dope and I shot it. And everyone's shooting up when I was in my teens. I never did much else. I shot up and that went on for 10 years. I shot up so much heroin and D together that I never did anything else. I never saw anything else. So I'm off it now and I'm out of prison and I'm here. You know what I noticed the most? Most? You know what the big difference I noticed is? Now I can walk down the street outside and see something. I can hear water when I visit the forests. You'll see our other facilities later on, farms and so forth. I can walk down the street, and the ordinary street, and see little dogs and cats. I never saw them before. All I saw was dope. So I understand how you feel. End quote. Now one thing that he talks about is animals and, and zoos. And this is something that Bruce has already acknowledged he wants to do. Um, now I'll just jump to it. A few pages later, after a few more short scenes in this New Life Rehab Center, um, we find out that Mike is actually working with Donna, who they're both working for the police. And so we meet Mike Westaway, who's meeting with Donna at a fast food stand, and they begin to talk about the situation. So this is kind of the big reveal section of, of the novel, where you know we thought maybe it was explained that that... Bob Arctor was just like a casualty in the war and they succeeded in catching Barris. Now that may be true, but there's a deeper agenda here. And essentially Mike is the inside man, you know, kind of coaching and, and pushing Bruce to where they want him to be. And what that is, is the, the, the idea that they have is that new life is producing substance D. Now Mike, you know, reports a little bit on, on, Bruce's condition that he even saying at one point that he seems to still be longing for Donna, but maybe, you know, really after a fashion or, or deep in his subconscious as he's kind of digging his way out of his his brain damage. Um, but it seems what the, what they really want is they know that this new life or they strongly suspect this new life is running a farm somewhere where they're growing this substance D, these flowers, right? And they want Bruce to kind of he moved there where he can identify these flowers and maybe get one or or at some point in some way be able to report back that you know some evidence that this is what's going on and donna sees this all as a, just a horrific sacrifice that the state has projected onto onto poor bob arctor bruce fred you know for you know he had to the only way he can be in this position to be a to get into this farm is if he's to so brain damaged that they trust him implicitly, right? If someone like Mike who can get in and out, you know, as like has kind of a, I don't know if he's like an outpatient figure or something, but he, he would never be trusted with this, with this relocation. That should be someone who's totally fried, right? So we learn here that the, the descent of Bob Arctor, you know, in his, the brain damage was all something that was kind of intended from the beginning. Donna says, I think really there's something, there's nothing more terrible than the sacrifice of someone or something, a living man without his ever knowing. If he knew, if he understood and volunteered, but he, he doesn't know. He never did. He didn't volunteer. And Mike's response is, well, that's just the job. And replies, he has no idea and he hasn't any idea now because he doesn't have any ideas. I know that as well as I do. You know that as well as I do. And he will never again in this life, as long as he lives, have any ideas, only reflexes. And this didn't happen accidentally. It wasn't supposed to happen. So we have this bad karma on us. I feel it on my back like a corpse. I'm carrying a corpse. Bob Arctor's corpse. Even while he's technically still alive. 
So then in chapter 15, Bruce again asks if he can work with animals to get outside and and Mike, I guess the, the supervisor, he's, he says, well, no, not yet, but we're thinking of getting you to work outside in one of these, one of our farms that they have these, these farms here and there. And he says, you'll be an outside, you'll be outside from now on. If your mind comes back, it'll have to come back naturally. You can't make yourself think again. You can only keep working such as sowing crops or tilling our vegetable plantations, as we call them, or killing insects. We do a lot of that, driving insects out of the existence with the right kind of spray. We're very careful, though, with spray. They can do more harm than good. End quote. So basically, that's what his job's going to be. He's going to be working on the, the farm with these special sprays. Now, we get a slight point of view, some internal stream of consciousness from this, this Mike character who reveals at this point that, that, yeah, they're the ones making Substance D. Money was always there. Well, Mike thought there's a lot of money in manufacturing Substance D. Out in various remote rural farms and small shops and several facilities labeled schools. Money in manufacturing it, distributing it, and finally selling it. At least enough to keep New Path solvent and growing and more. Sufficient for a variety of ultimate goals. Depending on what New Path intended to do. He knew something. U.S. drug restriction knew something. That most of the public, even the police, did not know. Substance D, like heroin, was organic, not a product of the lab. So he meant quite a bit when he thought, as he frequently did, that all the profits could keep New Path solvent and growing, end quote. So we were told all, through, all along that Substance D was a single, had a single source because it was, man, it was manufactured, right? And it was very complex and couldn't really be produced by many people. But in fact, it's, a, it's, it's organic. It comes from a certain flower that they have control of and they grow on these farms. Now, New Path, of course... So they got the cyclical thing. They produce the drugs, and then when the people get fried, they show up at new, new path to get better, and then they're going to make the drug for the next kind of round, right? In fact, the final lines of the novel are essentially that this is not for you anymore. It's for someone else. Now, what's the ultimate goal here? It's not, to me, very clear what new path's goal is, but they do have some other kind of conspiracy down the road. That's suggested strongly here, you know, that New Path wants to be solvent and growing to eventually achieve their quote-unquote ultimate goal. And maybe that ultimate goal is just, you know, you know, to, you know that of any corporation to, to continue to get bigger and bigger, which would, of course, mean the consumption of more and more people through the use of Substance D. Or maybe there's some other goal, something closer to what Bear seems to be involved with some kind of... Uh, anti-government conspiracy or something but for now it seems their their strategy essentially to recycle old drug users into workers to grow to make to grow drugs he go he goes on saying the living he thought should never be used to serve the purposes of the dead but the dead he glanced at bruce the empty shade behind him should if possible serve the purposes of of the living end quote now i actually agree with the first half of that the living should not be used to serve the purposes of of the dead i mean this is the case often with with you know with states or governments or even nationalism where people living today are enlisted into a cause that's defined as something ancient right like we have a duty to our ancestors or we have a duty to the constitution or we have a duty to uh, tradition or something well this is the living serving the dead and i think we shouldn't we should question that you know there may be things from the past that we can learn from and and use and borrow but it should be for the purposes of of the living now, this other half, though, the dead serving 
serving the living is interesting because he's of course defining these people as essentially the dead substance d is called death it's that's its street name that's its, its vernacular name is death and that's what it actually is it leads people to um to basically a life of the living dead these these people are essentially zombies i mean bruce for all intents and purposes, zombies got a little glimmer of, of life there, and that's what Donna and that Mike character are banking on—that he, you know, enough, he can have enough consciousness to to activate some kind of residual programming that they've kind of given him throughout the novel. And I think if you go back and read the novel, you see these little moments where they talk about flowers, or there's this moment where you know, there's talking about looking to the ground, which becomes very important later on. And that's still the danger. The dead can still see. That's what Mike says. The dead who can still see, even if they cannot understand, they are a camera. And it's wonderful here that Dick goes back to the whole concept of the scanner, right? The scanner was, of course, observing Bob Arctor, and Fred was kind of observing uh, Bob Arctor. And part of his the breakdown of his, of his consciousness of himself comes from this experience of viewing himself. Um, but now Bruce former Bob Arctor is is the camera for the police just mindly you know observing new path and their operations you know he's basically just a tool at this point who who's observing things it's the problem is there's there's no one at the other end of the scanner right that can really watch and and interpret chapter 16 covers Bruce's last day at the the main new life New Path, sorry, I think I keep saying New Life, the the the, the New Path um, complex, and he he starts to he remembers a few things from his old life. Quote, uh, well, he he saw some bones. He sees some small bone fragments, like a chicken bones or something, and he he th- he he, th- he thinks they look human, and he wonders if it's Jerry Fabin, who was a character who was sent to New Path earlier, in in the novel. In fact, he might be any of these people because it seems to get a new name when you're when you're in New Path. Um, so this made him remember an event from a long back in his life. He had once lived with two other guys, and sometimes they had kidded about owning a rat named Fred that lived under the sink. And when he got really broke one time, they told people they had to eat poor old Fred. Maybe this was one of his bone fragments, the rat who had lived under the sink, end quote. So what, you know, he, he's kind of confused about Jerry Fabin and this rat Fred. And of course, Fred was his name as the undercover police detective. So... It's he's all jumbled in his he's he's still jumbled about his memories, but he has little glimpses of of memory. There's another important passage in this very very short chapter, which is only about two pages overall, about the relationship between the community that that these characters come from, uh, the one where the the community that we spend most of this novel observing, and its relationship with the police. And there's an exaggerated kind of thought experiment here about every crime being the death penalty. But uh, there's something true to life here in that how the, the legal system and the justice system and the police sort of consume these communities until there's really nothing, no life left in them. They just kind of get drained out, right? Yes, drugs are doing that as well to a degree, but, but the regulation of the drugs, the police actions are doing that same kind of act. And it all gets broken out in this thought experiment of every crime being essentially a, a death penalty crime. Quote, if you broke the law, there was only the one law which everyone broke again and again a cop laboriously wrote it all up which law the infraction each time was the same one there was always the same penalty for any breaking of the law from jaywalking to treason the penalty was the death penalty and there was agitation to have the death penalty removed but it could not be 
because then for like jaywalking, there would be no penalty at all. So it stayed on the books and finally the community burned out entirely and died. No, not burned out. They had already, they already had that. They faded out one by one as they broke the law and sort of died. End quote. I think that's a really good uh, metaphor for what he's trying to say for the whole, throughout the whole book is just the, the, the death of this community. This, the, the, I mean, we're kind of back to some classic Philip Dick themes of entropy, I guess. Um, but it's much more tragic here, and it's much more brutal in in how it's it's kind of being decayed from both sides, both from the police and from the the law side, and from the drug users' own kind of insane embrace of this of this culture. Um, so, chapter uh, seventeen is a little bit longer, but it's it's still a fairly short uh, chapter that that shows. Uh, it's like two months later, Bruce is at this farm, you know, up in Northern California where the vineyards are and, and he's working there. And this is of course where the substance D flower is being produced. Now, why is he the perfect worker for this? Well, because of this, uh, breakdown between the hemisphere of his brain, he's really not capable, able to put things together. Right. So a lot of the, it seems they don't even like notice the flowers amongst the crops. So they're growing the regular crops, but on the ground are the flowers that are, of course, the, that's produced, that, that's the organic component of substance D. Um, but he finally does see it, right? So he, he sees these little lovely flowers. And this is a callback to some conversations he had earlier and some thoughts he had earlier about, about little blue spring flowers. Um, it's actually a reoccur reoccurring motif in the earlier parts of the novel. Um, now, the, the executive director of New Path notices he sees the flowers but isn't worried because of the the fried brain of of bruce and he says you're seeing the flower of the future but not for you you've had too much of a good thing already so get up and stop worshiping this isn't your god anymore your idol although it was once a transcendent vision is that what you are growing here you'll look as if it is you look at it as, as if it is and then bruce concludes the flowers of spring gone and he says no you simply cannot see them that's the philosophical problem you wouldn't comprehend, epistemology, the theory of knowledge, right? So he says, back to work, Bruce. But Bruce is still able to, to grab one of these flowers and kind of put it into his shoe or something. So there's a little bit of hope at the end that, that maybe somehow this can get back to Mike or this can be exposed. But it's a long shot. It seems it's all presented as a, as a long shot by this Donna and Mike and the police to to prove that New Path is producing the substance D and Bob Arctor all along was just a sacrifice to, to do that, to, uh, to get that one, one small chance. He might not be the only one though. So, so that's the end of the novel. Uh, so we end with, with poor Bruce wasting away his life as essentially a zombie on in New Path uh, working in the fields. Um, we, the conclusion of the novel actually is an author's note, and I think many of you have probably come across this or read it. Um, and here's what Dick writes. This has been a novel about some people who were punished entirely too much for what they did. They wanted to have a good time, but they were like children playing in the street. They could see one another of them being killed, run over, maimed, destroyed, but they continued to play anyways. We really all were very happy for a while, sitting around, not toiling, but just bullshitting and playing. But it was for such a terribly brief time, and the punishment was beyond belief. Even when we could see it, we could not believe it. And he goes on with a little bit of 
like he kind of back and forth about the moralism here. He's, he actually says drug use is not a disease. It's a decision. It's a bad decision. But at the same time, he's sympathetic to the people who engage it. And he thinks that the punishments they endured, death, you know, physical disability, uh, prison, you know, police oppression, all these things are, are more than they deserved. But they, they were consequences that these people could foresee and see around them, yet they continued to play. Um, the contrast here is not between play and work so much. That's not quite what Dick's saying. He does say, we play too much, and these people in my life play too much, and the characters in this novel play too much. But it's not like a straight-up work ethic kind of response. So I rather like what he writes here, in that it's not just these people should have just went to work and been square. Dick really appreciates what they're trying to do. He just sees it was so tragic and so devastating that there was some kind of irrationality in, in staying within that culture despite all the evidence that it was devastating to people. He writes, If there was any sin, it was in these people wanted to keep on having a good time forever and were punished for that. But as I say, I feel that, if so, the punishment was far too great. And I prefer to think of it only in a Greek or morally neutral way as mere science, as deterministic, impartial cause and effect. I love them all. Here's a list to whom I dedicate my love. Then he gives a list of friends who who died or, or suffered psychosis or brain damage or something due to drug use. He even puts himself on there to fill permanent pancreatic damage. Um, and then he repeats what he's been saying throughout this author's note. The enemy was their mistaken plane. Let them all play again in some other way and let them be happy. And that's this very, very touching author's author's note. I don't know if, if it's right to say drug misuse is not a disease. I, I know there's people who think it is, but Dick, as someone who was part of that culture, is claiming that, you know, it's 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 a decision. It was a choice that that these people made. So, anyways, that's that's all for the read through of of a scanner darkly. Thanks for for patiently uh, going through this novel chapter by chapter with me. Um, now, some of the themes of this novel there's there's of course many. Um, the heart of the the novel is of course about drug use and the drug culture and the impact it has on communities and individuals. So I don't know how much more to say about this. The, the drug substance D here is, it's not that special. It's not, um, it's not like some of the other drugs that Dick invents in his 60s novels where they really have like abilities. Substance D is just another kind of uh, addictive drug that, you know, that people get addicted to. It's, it's got this, this long-term effect just gives people brain damage, but it seems Dick at this point in his life thinks other drugs do that too. And you know, that you can't really recover from them as much as you, as much as you might want. So that's, that is a device used in the, in the novel, this splitting up of the hemispheres. But you know, I think Dick's experience is telling him that this is a fairly common experience. In fact, most of the things in this novel are, are pretty banal. They're pretty, commonplace there's it's really not much of a science fiction novel there's the scramble suit there is substance to a new drug there's the cephala chronoscope there's the the surveillance technology but none of that stuff is really miles above what's already there the cephala chronoscope is like a fancy tv the scanners are just fancy security cameras uh really the scanner the, or the 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 scramble suit is the only real technological device it's used really well though in this novel especially with with the division of this identity between fred and and, 
and, and Bob Arctor and it allows Dick to play with his different identities like who is who is Hank or who are these other people who use scramble suits at various times in the novel so I guess like we could put technology down even though I think this is just marginally a science fiction novel it's really just using a few science science fiction concepts to 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 allow Dick to dwell on the drug culture and his and to produce a criticism of the drug culture um, another big theme here is the police and their relationship with society. I think broadly, Dick is becoming more and more interested in this part of his career with state and society relations in general. I mean, this is not long before he starts talking about the Black Iron Prison in the Ballast Trilogy, which, of course, is really at the heart a discussion of the relationship between state and society and its totalitarian kind of framework. Uh, this isn't really a fascist dictatorship, but... Uh, it's actually still the best he gets at really talking about the relationship between power and society. He plays with it throughout his career, but this is such an intimate look where it really gets down to the day-to-day, nitty-gritty, brutal relationship between uh, the police who have power and these communities which are basically disempowered and marginalized. They're kipple. They're, they're human kipple, and they're being stamped on by, by the police You know, because, because that's what power does, right? So it's a fairly bleak view of, of that. It's, it's not like some of Dick's earlier novels where you have ways that these systems of power can be deconstructed or broken down. They're just there and they're, they're presented as fairly fairly permanent. Um, and this there's really no way out, right? Maybe the only way out here is for that community to decay and fall apart and just dissolve out of, out of exhaustion. That may be the only way this toxic relationship between the police and this sector of California society could end. Um, a lot, a lot of the relationships in this novel are, are as I'm calling, incestual, or, or you know, they they really feed off each other. Like the new path in the street, of course. The new path develops the drugs, and its workers are people who are drug addicts, and so they feed the street, and the street feeds new path, and it, it's just a cyclical thing. The same thing with the police and the dealer. It's very early on, it's established that the police are dealers. Um, you know, Bob Arctor buys drugs from Donna. Donna worked for the police as we learned and then Bob Arctor gives the drugs back to the police who then all might sell them or who knows where they go maybe they go back onto the street or maybe they go back to Donna who sells them it's, it's just this, this crazy circle um, and then of course both sort of need each other um, it's true with the paranoia too which I'll get to later on Barris and Arctor are that same way where they're they're kind of informing on each other and paranoid about each other that they're kind of in this mutual relationship of sorts uh, not just because they're living together but because they basically that their plots revolve around each having paranoia about the other's role bears thinking Arctor's a police detective so he finally tries to inform on him to try to uh, protect himself and you know Arctor's you know suspicious about Barris's actions Another theme is communities and societies in, in deep decay. Um, an old philoptic theme. We see it in Martian Time Slip. We see it in Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, and, and other novels. It's just so much more intimately discussed in this novel. Um, like in Martian Time Slip, it's just sometime in the future, these communities on Mars, these basically essentially suburban developments in Mars, are going to be crappy little slums. We don't see the process of it becoming slums, right? You know, I guess in Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep, we're in the slum, but we didn't see the process of how it became a slum. It's just implied. Here we were in the middle of it, right? It's it's this is the this is the formation of human kipple. 
and it's it's take it's taking place right before our eyes in the course of a few weeks that this novel takes place over. It's it's quite powerful and and devastating. There's a lot in this novel about loss as well. I put it up as another theme. Uh, uh, Bob Archer's loss of Donna, um, his his loss of his family, right? The family that may or may not be there. It's it's somewhere in the backdrop, and we can't really trust too much of Bob Archer or Fred's internal monologue. But he's he's lost his family. The loss of friends is a big part, right? Uh, to to suicide, and in fact, the opening scene is this guy Jerry Fabin, who was a friend of them, who who's lost, right? We don't really get to see much of him, but people think about him a lot, and he's in people's minds. And so loss is a big part of this this novel as well. Um, at the heart of it is paranoia, and just all I need to say is that everyone is paranoid about everyone here. Um, the first two chapters are just dueling paranoias. The first is Charles Freck's paranoia about the police. Well, first you start with the paranoia about the aphids, right? But then it's paranoia about the police. And then we in the next chapter we see the square community's paranoia about the drug culture through the that meeting at the Anaheim Lions Club. Mental illness in general is talked about quite a lot here, but mostly it's as a consequence of drug use. Um, there's not, uh, I am at paranoia, I guess it's not really mental illness, or, or it can be. But most of, the, most of the mental illness here is a product of, of physiological damage due to drugs. But there is still a lot of mental illness. We got the, the asylum of sorts, New Path becoming a type of asylum. We have therapy. So a lot of the, it checks a lot of the boxes of novels that Dick wrote that deal with therapy and mental illness. And then we have a lot here on suburbia, and that's the last theme I want to emphasize in this novel. Just the, Especially in the early chapters, we get such vivid descriptions of, of the banality of suburbia. There's that wonderful passage at the beginning where I think it's Bob Arctor is thinking about McDonald's, McDonald Land burgers, and how they're selling the same burger constantly, and how everything's the same. The houses are all the same. They're all interchangeable. The people are kind of interchangeable. Uh, it's It's pretty creepy but this is how dick sees uh the suburbs and this is how dick sees this part of american life and you know he, he lived in it most of his life but his criticism of it is it runs throughout his work and it never really goes away um it's not new but it it's here once again so um so that does it i i think it's a great novel i think it's his last great novel and probably is the best novel he wrote in the or published in the 70s. So of the few novels we looked at in the 70s, I think that's the best. Um, of course, we have to qualify that. He didn't write that much in the 70s. He Two of the novels he published in the 70s were, were written in the earlier time, uh, like in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, Maze of Death and Frolux, Our Friends from Frolux 8 are really the end of that 60s, those 60s novels, I think, in a lot of ways. So it's really only Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and A Scanner Darkly. That are the true 70s novels. Even Deus Ere was was kind of drafted out back in the 60s. So of this two, I think this is a stronger novel, although I like I like both of them quite a lot. Um, I don't think it, it quite matches his greatest 60s novels, like um, Galactic Pot Healer or Do Andrews Dream of Electric Sheep, but... Um, nevertheless, I very much like this novel, and it's one I come back to a lot. I, I think it's... It deals with so many of his themes in such an intimate and personal way. I, I think it, it really, you have to look at this this novel if you haven't read it yet. Uh, the movie adaptation is also, I think, the best of the movie adaptations of any of Philip K. Dick's works. So check out that, that movie adaptation if you want. It's got that really interesting animation style, which I think fits with the themes of the novel. Uh, there's just a few, I mean, there's a few 
parts that are cut, of course, but I think there's, you know, it covers most of the main tops. A couple characters are condensed, but you know, it's 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 pretty much all there. Um, so I think it's a good good film adaptation and better than any other film adaptations of of Dick's works. So overall, I, I think this is a really a worthwhile book. Um, so looking ahead, we are we got a couple short stories before we're we're formally out of the nineteen seventies. Uh, one, I think three, two or three, and then we'll jump to the eighties. We got we'll we'll f- I'll finish up with the other short stories first, and before get, and I'll do the vowels trilogy as kind of a an ending of this of this series. So just a few more weeks of, of short stories, and then we'll jump into the vowels, and, and we'll we'll see where that leads us. I'm going to look at um, not just the three novels that Dick published in nineteen eighty and eighty one, eighty two. But also look at Radio Free Albemuth because it's it's sort of a first draft of Vallis and it deals with a lot of themes. In fact, I think Radio Free Albemuth is a is a better book than Vallis, so I want to include that. So that's a posthumously published novel, but I'll throw that in. So it's actually four novels that make up the the Vallis trilogy, quote unquote trilogy. Um, and I'll do that, and and then we'll be done with this Philip K. Dick book book club. Uh, it'll be open ended though. I'll, I might have some other things to say, but we're getting towards the end here. So anyways, thanks as always for listening. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot I didn't say uh, about A Scanner Darkly. Maybe some things that are very near and dear to you and, and your reading of this novel. So feel free to share that with me uh, through through email. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just throw your comments below so everyone can see them. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye.